Well, good evening. Thanks for hanging out with us this evening. Um, so I think tonight for Q&A, we're mostly in Ezekiel, and then we've got a little bit of Jude um, at the end. So, um, yeah. So pray and we'll get stuck in. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the life and the hope that we find in your word. And uh, I thank you for the opportunity that we have to come together and to, to chew it over and to discuss it and to ask questions of it and to press into it. And we pray, Lord, that as we talk through some of the questions that have been put in, uh, that you, you would reveal more of yourself to us through it, that we would find it encouraging and challenging, uh, but ultimately, Lord, that we would find more of you in it. This is our prayer. Amen. Okay, <clears throat> so uh, the first question is um, Ezekiel chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. And it says, did Ezekiel actually eat the scroll? Is it metaphorical, meaning he took, took in the words, or was it a vision or a dream? So Ezekiel chapter 1, sorry, 3, verses 1 to 3, says this. And, then, uh, and he said to me, son of man... I'll tell you what, I'm going to go from the end of chapter 2, actually. So verse 9. Then I looked and I saw a hand stretched out to me. In it was a scroll, which he unrolled before me. On both sides of it were written words of lament and mourning and woe. And he said to me, son of man, eat what is before you. Eat this scroll, then go and speak to the people of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me the scroll to eat. Then he said to me, Son of man, eat this scroll I'm giving you and fill your stomach with it. So I ate it, and it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. Sorry, I started to chuckle to myself then when it said about it having words of lament, mourning, and woe. And I was like, it's just like a newspaper today, isn't it? <laughs> Ezekiel was reading the Times or the Telegraph or the something. Um, but okay, the Daily... Mail, Daily Mail, lovely. Any others? No? <laughs> Don't read them. Um, so, do you know, when I first read this question, I thought, this is going to be quite a quick one, quite a, quite a simple one. Um, and my simple answer is, maybe yes, maybe no. <laughs> um, because the, the text doesn't really tell us. You either read it as Ezekiel literally ate a scroll, um, in which case he did eat a scroll. And paper eating's not actually that uncommon, is it? I, I, there are, well, I remember when I was in school, one of my friends, Mark, used to eat paper all the time. He'd just tear corners out of his book and sit and eat paper. Yeah, weird. Yeah, I don't know what that says about me that I was friends with him, but hey. Um, yeah, but so um, maybe he did physically eat it. Maybe it was just a vision. So um, in Revelation, which is a vision that John has, right? We know it because he tells us it's a vision. Um, in Revelation, John also gets given a scroll to eat. So maybe it was a vision. Maybe it was something he saw almost in his mind or before him imagined it or saw it or that's what was kind of going on like a dream. It, it, it's possible. Um, I was doing a little bit of research on this, which took me down a little bit of a rabbit warren. Um, well, I won't go all the way down it. We'll just share a few little thoughts. It's interesting that um, lots of ancient authors uh, used 
the idea of eating or drinking as a literary device to signify revelation from the spiritual world. So it might be that you drank from the cup and they had revelation, or they ate the scroll and they had revelation. Or So actually it's quite a common literary device used in ancient, ancient literature. So probably Ezekiel is using that literary device. And it's highly likely that John in Revelation is borrowing from Ezekiel because there's about one or two references to the Old Testament per verse in the book of Revelation. That's how much of the Old Testament gets used in Revelation. So highly likely that John's referring to this Ezekiel passage. Um, but then I was also thinking, interesting, there's actually a lot about eating in the Bible. It's probably once one of my favorite books. Um, you can laugh at that, <laughs> but, uh, or not. Um, but there's loads. There's loads about eating in general. I mean, Jesus, half the encounters he has is when he's sat eating with people and there's stuff going on. I love that. Uh, but think about some of these verses that appear in the Bible. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Isn't that a weird one? As I actually, it's one that I think we love. But what does it mean to taste and see that the Lord is good? Like, yeah, an experience maybe, yeah. But then moving on from that, the Bible says, man shall not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. So does taste and see mean to devour the word and see that God is good? Right. We, we learn from Psalm 1 that those who meditate on the word of the Lord day and night are like trees planted by streams of living water that always bear fruit. So does taste and see, is it reference to, to taking in the word of the Lord? Uh, Jesus, he says, when the disciples, they've gone off to buy lunch and they come back and they find him and they bring him this lunch and he says that he's already eaten. He says, I've got food to eat that you don't know about. And he's talking about the will of his father. So, the, so there's something in the Bible that eating isn't just about physical eating, it is about taking in, it's about feeding your whole soul, your spirit and your body, not just physical eating, right? Something that God gives more than food. Um, Jesus says, whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never thirst. He says, I am the bread of life. Does he literally mean you're to eat him? In fact, in John 6, he says, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man, you have no life in you. Oh, what does that mean? Um, I don't have any definite answers for you. Other than to say, um, I think Jesus is the word, become flesh. And I think there's something about when we take in the word, we taste and see that he is good. When we taste of him, when we take in his word, life is formed in us. We're nourished and we're fed and we're brought to life. Um, I think... Ezekiel, maybe he physically ate some paper that was given to him, although there's a lot of weird things that he saw. Are they literal? Are they vision to tell him something more? I think yes, yes, who knows? Uh, but I think definitely we can say that at a very basic level, this is telling us something about God's word being received by Ezekiel. And we know then that he was to take the words that were written on the scroll and to speak them to the people. So something about receiving God's word is revelation and then speaking that out into the community of Israel. Is that, is that cool? Yeah? Great. 
All right, question two is for Den. It's Ezekiel 11, verses 5 and 7. Uh, it says, why does one verse say, this is what the Lord says, and the other verse say, this is what the sovereign Lord says? Uh, Ezekiel chapter 11, 5 and 7. <coughs> Before we have a look at um, these verses, uh, if I said to you, what's a house of lords all about? Uh, you probably say to me, well, there's a load of guys in there because they've gained an inheritance. There's a load of guys in there that have done good things for the country, and so they've been knighted, as, not knighted as a serf, but they've become a lord. And if I said to you, who is a sovereign? You would say to me, it's King Charles. So there's a difference between lord and sovereign. Sovereign, uh, going in the past, a sovereign had complete authority. I mean, nowadays we get the uh, government, which is the real top line of authority, and, and, and the king, King Charles, is more of a figurehead. But in years gone by, the king of this country and of other countries had complete authority. So there's a difference between a lord and a sovereign. But with Jesus, he is lord and sovereign. Okay, so let's read the verses. Uh, uh, verse 5, then the Spirit of the Lord came on me, and he told me to say, this is what the Lord says, that is what you are saying, you leaders in Israel, but I know what is going through your mind. You have killed many people in this city and filled its streets with the dead. Stop. So this is what is coming from the Lord in a context. It's two contexts. The Lord is one context, sovereign is another context, but with Jesus, of course, as we said, he's always Lord and Savior. So the context in which this is given to Ezekiel is coming in the context of the Lord. So the Lord is saying to Ezekiel, tell these people this. Then in verse 7, therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord, context is changing. The bodies you have thrown there are the meat, and this city is the pot. That is referring to the people of Jerusalem, this is before Jerusalem fell, okay? And Ezekiel is in Babylon, and he's getting this message. And what the people in Jerusalem have said is that we are like the meat in the pot. Jerusalem was a, the pot. They were safe in the meat, as a meat in the pot in Jerusalem, because they thought Jerusalem would never fall. They thought because the ark was there, because the temple was there, that Jerusalem would never fall, because God would protect them. So they're saying that we're the meat in the pot. And God is saying, you're not the meat in the pot. I'm going to take the meat out of the pot. And so carrying on in verse 8, you fear the sword, and the sword is what I will bring against you, declares the sovereign Lord, sovereign Lord. I will drive you out of the city and deliver you into the hands of foreigners and inflict punishment on you. You will fall by the sword. This is by the Babylonians. And I will exercise judgment on you at the borders of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord. This city will not be a pot for you, nor will you be the meat in it. I will execute judgment on you at the borders of Israel. So now the context has changed from the Lord saying, as the Lord to Ezekiel, say this to the people, to the sovereign king now exercising his complete authority 
by saying, I'm going to bring up the Babylonians. They're going to come to Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is going to fall. Do you see the difference in, in the context between the two verses, between verses 5 to 6, and then a different context between 7 and just flowing down to verse 10? So it's a, just a difference in context. One is, one is Jesus is Lord, and we say to him, um, Lord, have mercy. God, have mercy. We don't say sovereign king, have mercy. We say Lord, have mercy, don't we? Um, so the, the, the difference between the two is the context. Okay? So the sovereign is going to carry out everything, as a king would um, in years gone by. When kings were uh, the real kings of England and they had supreme power, they said anything went. Whatever they said, that would happen. And this is the same with Jesus. Whatever he says, he is the sovereign of the universe. He made the universe. So in that context, he is sovereign. And now he is speaking as Lord in the, the verses 5, and he's speaking as sovereign in verse 7. So it just boils down to that difference in context. But he is the only one who is Lord and King because we've got the House of Lords, we've got King Charles. Two different, two different things. The, the, the people in the House of Lords are not king, and King Charles is not a, a, a person in the House of Lords. So just boils down to context. Um, verse 7 um, and verse 8. What do you have in yours? Lord God. Hmm, interesting. So... It's, it's probably worth noting that in verse 5 and verse 7 and 8, where the word Lord appears, um, it's Lord in capital letters in everybody else's Bible as well. So that's the name of the Lord, as in Yahweh, in, in the Hebrew. And then Sovereign Lord, and yours, die says Lord God, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. So, but even still in yours, in yours the first time, it's just Lord, as in his name, Yahweh. And then the second time, it's Lord God. There's, there's, there's an increase in, in the titles given to him. And I think this is interesting. If you look in verse, I was just reading this now as Dan was speaking, you look in verse um, 5. <clears throat> so this is what the Lord says. This is what you are saying, you leaders in Israel. I know what's going through your mind. So he's a, who's he addressing? He's addressing the leaders of Israel, right? So this is what Yahweh says to you, you leaders of Israel, that you think that you can lead however you want, and you're doing all these things, right? And then verse 7, therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says, or in yours, die, this is what the Lord God says. It's just like you think you're leaders, but, but I'm above you. There is that changing context that Dan was talking about. There's that step up isn't there there's that further revelation that god is over them as well that shift um is that yeah yeah it's cool okay um i'm still intrigued why your second time doesn't have lord in capital letters interesting anyway 
Um, okay, as next question then is uh, Ezekiel 20, verse 25, which says this. So I gave them, uh, I gave them other statutes that were not good and laws which they could not live. Uh, sorry, laws through which they could not live. So I gave them other statutes that were not good and laws through which they could not live. And the question is, were God's laws good or bad? Isn't that interesting? Because we think, oh, God's word is good. His, his law is good. Um, and yet, here God says, well, I gave them other statutes that were not good and through which they couldn't find life, basically. Um, and so at first, at first, this verse appears to say that the laws of God that he gave them at this time weren't good. Um, and that throws a spanner in the works for us, doesn't it? And people have tried to justify that uh, over the years by linking this to the things that Paul says, where he says that the old law was given to... Um, saying that the, the law was there to bring death, basically to show our need of God. So Romans chapter 5, verse 20 Paul talks about that, how the law itself revealed our sin and, and it kind of, um, so it brought about death so that we know our, our need of God. Is that kind of what is getting at? But the reality is, is that Paul actually still saw the law as good. He didn't think the law was bad. And this here says that these other statutes are not good. But Paul still thought the law was good. Um, so in Romans 7.13 and Galatians 3.19, Paul talks about the fact that the law is good. It hadn't become something bad. It was good. Um, so what is going on here then? If, if God's law, it might reveal our sin, but it's still ultimately good. Why is God saying I gave them statutes that were not good and laws through which they could not live? Well, the context here is, is giving them over to something. So if you look at a couple of verses before, go up to verse 23, it says... Um, where is it? <clears throat> also, with uplifted hand, I swore to them in the wilderness that I would disperse them among the nations and scatter them through the countries because they had not obeyed my laws but had rejected my decrees and desecrated my Sabbaths and their eyes lusted after uh, their parents' idols. And then he says, so I gave them other statutes that were not good. Well, the context here is God giving his people over to other nations, other cultures, other religions, other idols. And, and so when it talks about that, he's not saying I gave them my statutes that were not good. He's saying I gave them over to these other nations. And through that, they were given other laws, other practices, other um, religious rituals through which they would never find life and they weren't good. The, the hope being that they would see how good my law was for them. Does, does that make sense? Um, verse 26, it says, I defiled them through their gifts, the sacrifice of every firstborn, that I might fill them with horror so they would know that I am the Lord. That again is talking about the fact that he had given them over to these other nations. And in many of these other nations, some of the practices were sacrificing your children. 
And he's saying they became defiled through the sacrifices that I gave them over to because they didn't live by my sacrifices. And the hope is that as they went into this, they would remember that I am the Lord. And does that make sense? So this verse isn't God saying, I gave them things that were really bad that would kill them, that they couldn't live by. This is God saying, I, did, I gave them stuff before that was really good, that they would find life in. Because the Bible says that those who follow the laws of the Lord will live by them, right? But actually he's saying, they didn't live by them. So I gave, <coughs> excuse me. I gave them over to other nations and their laws and their practices got given to them. And they, they couldn't find life in them. They wouldn't live by them. Does that make sense? Yes, Glenis. Yes, that's a great link. Yeah, so Romans 1, for the sake of the podcast, Glenis just said, is it like Romans 1 where God says he gave them over uh, to the sinful nature and all that kind of stuff that he lists? Yeah, he gave, he gave them over to the law of sin, to other ways that would not bring life but would lead to death so that they would see again that he is good. Yeah. Is that okay? All right. <clears throat> Next question then is Ezekiel 21 verse 21. Uh, and the question is, why will the king of Babylon examine a liver before moving down a road? <laughs> I'm intrigued. Yeah, quite a question really, isn't it? Uh, don't you find the book of Ezekiel fantastic? When a guy um, was preaching this morning, he said, we've just been through Ezekiel, and it's so hard. And I thought, it's so good. And uh, I, I, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, all fits together. And it, it, it's so good. They're all, all around the same time, all around the same context. And... It's great. It's not to, to just push Ezekiel aside and think when we come to it in our Bible readings, oh, no, it's Ezekiel. Get stuck into it and then have a look at it and work it out. And, and, and it's fantastic. Um, so here we go. This um, funny thing about the liver. Um, I'm going from verse 18 um, of uh, 21. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, Mark out two roads for the sword by the king of Babylon to take, both starting from the same country. Make a signpost where the road branches off to the city. Mark out one road for the sword to come against Rabbah of the Ammonites and another against Judah and fortified Jerusalem. For the king of Babylon will stop at the fork in the road at the junction of the two roads to seek an omen. He will cast lots with arrows. He will consult his idols. He will examine the liver. Into his right hand will come the lot for Jerusalem, where he has set up a battering rams to give the command to the slaughter to the sound of the battle cry, to set battering rams against the gates and to build a ramp, etc. So the context of this is that the uh, Prophecies of Habakkuk are coming true. He said that the Lord is going to raise up the Babylonians to come to Jerusalem because the people of Jerusalem have just been so bad in their pagan worship, going after pagan gods. And now this has finally happened. So Nebuchadnezzar comes out of Babylon. He's coming across uh, the east 
from through Mesopotamia between the rivers, uh, Euphrates um, and the Tigris. And he comes to this point way north of Jerusalem, Hamath. And he stops. And there's two roads. One is going across to the Amorites, which is really going over to where Turkey is today, if you like, going, going, east, going west. Or he can come down to Jerusalem. So there's this fork in the road, and he can take whichever road he wants. Who is he going to come, and who is he going to um, decimate first? Is it going to be Jerusalem, or is it going to be the Amorites? And so in those days, they used to use these things like liver, arrows, teraphim, which is small idols, to determine which way to go and what to do. And so this is the case with this verse. And so what happens is, if you get arrows, and this is what they used to do, uh, pagan rituals, they would put arrows into a quiver, and each arrow would be marked with a different city on it. Shake the arrows up, pull the arrow out. If it said Jerusalem, we'll go to Jerusalem. Right? If it said go to Ammon, we'll, we'll go to Ammon. And with the teraphim, do you remember that uh, Laban had teraphims, and Rachel pinched the teraphims, and she hid them in her saddlebag. But this was all connection with uh, what should we do? We use a teraphim to do this. We use a teraphim to, to go here, to go there. And this is the same with the liver. It's a pagan thing. And so what they would do is get an animal, sacrifice the animal, and look at the liver. Okay? And according to the state of the liver from the animal sacrifice, whether it was mutilated, whether it was complete, whether it was sound or unsound, they looked at the color of the liver. And from all this, there was rules laid down to say what way to go, what to do from the liver. So there's a set of rules. They didn't just take a, a, a liver out of an animal and look at it. And go, there was a set of rules according to the condition and the color of the liver, what to do. So you've got arrows, what should we do? You've got liver, let's have a look at the liver. You've got teraphim. Uh, let's, let's ask a teraphim what to do. And this is, this is how they would go about things. But overruling all of this is gone. Because no matter what Nebuchadnezzar wants to do from looking at the liver and looking at the arrows in the teraphim, God has already said, I am bringing you up to come to Jerusalem and to attack Jerusalem and to take the people away into exile. So no matter what, not whatever the people and the, the mystics uh, with uh, Nebuchadnezzar tells him, he is going to go to Jerusalem because God is in charge. He's in charge of the liver. He's in charge of the arrows. Uh, he's in charge of the teraphim, if you like. He's, he's overall. So they're going to come to Jerusalem. But this is the, the answer to the question about the liver. This is what they would do in those days. They would look at the color. They would look at the, uh, the texture of it. They would look at the marks, how it came out of the, the animal. And they, they, that would determine what they were going to do. But in regards to the Amorites, they were going to get it anyway. After Jerusalem, the Amorites were going to get it anyway. So it, did, it didn't matter. Um, but it mattered to God which way to go. And it mattered to the fulfillment of the prophets like Habakkuk, who is going to say, He's going to bring up the Babylonians to come to you uh, 426 uh, BC 
was, was, was his prophecy. And uh, the Babylonians came to Jerusalem in, in, in uh, 409 BC. So, you know, it all, it all works out right. But that is, that, that is it's just such a strange thing. But going back to the Laban thing and uh, where Rachel uh, took the, the, the teraphim, that was still in operation then. She she wanted those those things to, to actually go through in, in in the worship of these things in that way, um, but of course you know God steps in over time and, and everything changes and um, but it's 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 a really strange thing to think in those times that that was happening and yet God was in charge of His country Israel He was in charge of all the things that had happened right through time to the time that Jerusalem was going to fall. He's in charge of all of that. He took care of his country, even if they went against him. But out there, where the uh, Babylonians, they didn't, they didn't have God in that way, didn't, didn't know God in that way. And so they used these things to dictate what they were going to do, where they were going to go. Now, I know that sounds stupid to us, but that's, that's what happened. And, and even today, you're going to get coverings, you're going to get... Um, demonic people out there and they're going to go in a, in a different way to this to, to a different way to god and against god so um i hope that covers the question of the liver uh, but don't try it on an animal because it's not going to work go to the bible instead i was about to say i'm really glad that when someone comes to prayer ministry we don't have to let me just slice open this cow and see what his liver says you know It'd be a really messy building, wouldn't it, if we had to do that every time? Um, I was just thinking as you were talking about that then, it reminded me, anyone seen the film Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves? Remember the sheriff of Nottingham's got that, is she blind, the witch that he goes to? And she puts livers in a dish, doesn't she, to try and tell him what's going to happen or something like that. Yeah, so pagan practice. Yeah, can't watch that bit, yeah. Shakespeare, you just outclassed me, didn't you? <laughs> um, hubble, bubble, toil and trouble. That sounds like um, Hocus Pocus. It's in Hocus Pocus as well, right? <laughs> anyway, right. Um, all right, the next question then is, Ezekiel chapter 28. We're concerned mostly with verses 11 to 19. Uh, but I want us to have a little look at some of the verses before as well. But the question says this, is this about the king of Tyre or Satan? Ooh, great question. So flick to the start of chapter 28 first and just have a quick look. You'll see verse 1 says, uh, coming into this chapter, it says, The word of the Lord came to me, <clears throat> Son of man, say to the ruler of Tyre, this is what the sovereign Lord says. In the pride of your heart, you say, I am a God. I sit on the throne of a God. In the he and so he starts talking to the, to the ruler of Tyre, okay, who we, I think, assume as a human being, okay? All sounds good. Verse 7, I'm going to bring foreigners against you, and blah, it goes on and on. Then we get to verse 11, and it says, The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, take up a lament concerning the king of Tyre, and say to him, this is what the sovereign Lord says. So who's it to? The king of Tyre. But then listen to this. 
You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you. Then there's a load of stones that I can't pronounce. <laughs> Your setting and mountains, uh, mountings were made of gold. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were anointed as a guardian cherub. And so I ordained you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. Interesting. Was the king of Tyre there in the Garden of Eden? I don't remember that. God created Adam and Eve and the king of Tyre. You know, just this wasn't there, was he? You know, who was in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve? The serpent. Yeah, Satan. Um, and we, we know the story, right, that, that Satan is this fallen angel, this cherub, as he's called here. Um, so it's a really interesting question. Is this about the king of Tyre or is this about Satan? Did God get his titles wrong when he was saying, say this to the king of Tyre or, or what's going on here? And I think the answer is both. I'm going to be giving you a lot of that tonight. Is it this? Yes. Is it this? Yes. <laughs> um, I think the answer is both. Um, and the reason I think that is, um, I think it is about the king of Tyre. Clearly, the first kind of 11, the first 10 verses were directly to this human ruler, weren't they? And then this next bit gets carried on, and it appears to be addressed to the king of Tyre. But the verses, the way they speak, it, it sounds like it's talking about someone else that's been around a lot longer and was in Eden. And I think it is both. And I think it's both because I think that what this recognizes, which the Bible does a lot, it is that, yes, God is against this human being. But God's also recognizing that there's an evil force behind that human being. Are you with me? The king of Tyre didn't just go off and do evil. Some other spiritual power was at work there against God and his people through the king of Tyre. And the Bible tells us this again and again. In the New Testament, it tells us our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers in the spiritual realms. Sometimes, my mentor said this to me once. He said, sometimes people are really rude. He said, but often it might not be them. It might just be some spirit that's behind them can kind of trying to speak in. And so maybe that spirit has got them being grumpy or has got them being rude, or has got them being, you know. And I thought, that's really interesting. And there was a point once where I found that with someone, and I was like, this person is being, I just, I don't know what it is, they're being so off. And, and so I, after he said this, committed to start praying for that person and praying against any spiritual thing going on. And do you know what? Blow me down. Over the next few weeks, something changed. And I was like, oh, maybe there was something spiritual. Not that that person was possessed or anything like that, but maybe there was some sort of work of the enemy trying to get at me through that person or maybe even you know, just trying to kind of bring that person down. And I thought, that's really interesting. Our battle's not with flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers in the spiritual realm. And I think that's what's going on here. And Without going through all of them, there's, there's, I've got some examples for you. There's, there's a number of places in the Bible where we see this, where there's a direct link between various characters 
and this serpent figure. So in Jeremiah 46, verse 22, we, we get told that Egypt will hiss like a serpent. You're like, oh, that's an interesting kind of phrase. Like, we know who the serpent is in the scripture. Isn't it interesting that the author chose to use that word? You think that's interesting. There's this Egypt operating like a serpent. And I think that actually you see this back in the Exodus story. The Pharaoh is just the latest manifestation of the power of evil. If you track the work of the serpent all the way through from Genesis, you, you see him at work in lots of different ways. We, we see the serpent at work in the story of Cain and Abel. We see evil at work, and it's just kind of going on. And, and so this, this serpent figure behind, almost like a puppet master, behind Pharaoh and in Egypt. Um, in Jeremiah 51, verse 34, we see that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, is described as a serpent. It's like, oh, there's this serpent figure, this evil character at work again behind this oppressive ruler, um, a bit like Pharaoh and the king of Tyre. Um, we see in Ezekiel 29, uh, verses 1 to 3, you can read that there, and it, it, it talks about, um, and also in, in chapter 32, verse 2, it, it talks about this language of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, linking it with this serpent or this sea monster language. It's worth just noting at this point that from Genesis 3 to Revelation, we get this language of um, uh, this, this wild beast, this serpent, this sea monster, this dragon, and, and the word used in the Hebrew and then into the Greek in the New Testament. That the, If you use the Greek word in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, is the same word. It's the same word all the way through. So we get this connection. So sometimes we hear it as a, a serpent, and by the end of the story, it's this big dragon. Like, you know, but it basically is, is, the, is the same character all the way through the scriptures. Um, so we get him here in, in chapter 29 of Ezekiel and chapter 32, directly linked with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, um, this great sea monster and this serpent. In, in Isaiah 27, um, which uh, is this chapter about... Um, the deliverance of Israel from Egypt and Assyria. Um, but again, the language is all about the defeat of this serpent. Um, and yet we're reading this story about deliverance of Israel from these people, but it's about this serpent. So again, there's this, this, there's this work of the serpent going on. And, and I'll just finish up with these ones. Um, <clears throat> you go to Re Revelation chapter 12. We're, we're going to get there um, next month. Whoop. Uh, Revelation chapter 12 and verse 9, we read that John writes uh, about the, the great dragon, which is Satan. So we know that when John talks about the dragon, he's talking about Satan. And then in, in chapter 13 of Revelation, um, we read that, that this dragon gave his power and authority to the beast. And the beast is, is probably in Revelation, is, is probably at that time for them symbolic of Rome, of this, of this empire, of this um, uh, kind of oppressive force, a bit like Egypt, a bit like Tyre, a bit like Babylon, a bit like Assyria, and now Rome in, in the New Testament. Um, and, and so all the way through, we see the enemy, he keeps trying to do the same thing. He keeps trying to manipulate people in power, which is what he did in Eden, because what was it that Adam and Eve were commissioned to do? To rule over creation in God's image. And so they're the people with power, aren't they, in the Eden story? And he tries to manipulate them 
to turn against God. And that's what he's doing all the way through. He's trying to manipulate people and get them to use their power to turn against God and to lead others away. And, and that's the pattern of the serpent all the way through. So, so to come back to our question, Ezekiel 28, verses 11 to 19, is this about the king of Tyre or is this about Satan? It's about both. It is to the king of Tyre, but it's to him because the serpent, the, the dragon, Satan, is at work in and through this character um, behind the scenes. Does that make sense? Great. Um, Yeah, yeah, definitely. The, the, so just for the sake of the podcast, I was saying about when Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Um, yeah, and actually, is he talking to Peter or is he talking to maybe some force that's at work trying to deceive Peter and trying to get in the way of what Jesus is doing? Yeah. Good. I'm just going to finish off um, to give you what happened to Tyre in the end um, because this prophecy is, is explained is coming up against Tyre. And... <clears throat> I've always got this thing um, about the Bible to know the history and the geography as well as the spiritual. Uh, a history and a geography remains the same. The spiritual moves on. So the history and the geography of everything in the Bible is, is solid. It stays the same. When you hear a, uh, a sermon, when you read the Bible, when you go to your Tuesday uh, meetings, then the Holy Spirit can speak new things to you bring new things out of the Bible. So the spiritual content is always moving on. But the history and the geography stays the same. And the history of Tyre and, and what happened to them, in where the Lebanon is now, you had Tyre and Sidon. You remember that from the New Testament, okay? The city of, the city of Tyre was in two places. There was a city of Tyre on the mainland, on the coast, which is the city that Nebuchadnezzar came up against. And there was an island half a mile off the coast of Tyre, the mainland. And that island was called Tyre also. And it was fortified. It had high walls all the way around it. It had two harbors. And it was famous and loved for trade throughout the Mediterranean. Everybody wanted to come to Tyre. Everybody wanted to trade Tyre. Stuff would come from India across land, spices. Wheat would come from Israel, gold would come from Ophir, stuff would come from Spain and Libya. Everybody loved Tyre, and they got to this position where they thought that they were the god. They thought that they were the greatest. And as Matt said, behind it all is, is the work of Satan. And they thought that they were great. And this is why God came in and said, you know, with, with the prophecies through what Ezekiel is saying, you've had your lot, mate. And when Alexander the Great came through Persia and down through Israel and into Egypt, this island stood in the way. And what he did was to build a causeway out, brick by brick, stone by stone, out to this island to bring his siege engines out to Tyre. And even that wasn't enough. So he got ships from the, the countries that he had conquered, and they came in against Tyre, and they conquered Tyre. This is the end of Tyre. This is the end of that prophecy. And where Tyre was also involved in slave trading, which is not a nice thing, another great thing which, which God didn't like, 
When Alexander the Great took over that island, he sold 30,000 people from the river, from the island of Tyre into captivity. 6,000 soldiers were killed, 4,000 people, but 30,000 people went in, sold into captivity. So this is the end of the prophecy. Finish. The prophecy of God has come true, and that's the end of it for Tyre. Cool. Thanks, Dan. Um, okay, our next question then is Ezekiel 38, verse 1, um, and it's for Den. Who is Gog, and where is Magog? I could say no one knows, but um, I'm not going to. Who is Gog, and who is Magog? Um, to just to answer that question right at the very, very start and to um, get it out of the way. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, Gog is the prince of Magog. Gog is the leader of this coalition of countries, if you like, um, what you can see on your map, okay? So Gog is the leader. Gog is a prince. And Magog is a, a, a symbol of, of all the other um, places on the map. Now, let's read the, uh, read the question. And it says, the hand of the Lord, this is uh, 38, 38, 1. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, set your face against Gog. He's a, he's a, he's a chief guy of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. Prophesy against him and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against you, Gog, chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. I will turn you around, put hooks in your jaws, and bring you out with your whole army, your horses, your horsemen, fully armed, and a great horde with large and small shields, all of them branching their swords. Notice this includes Persia. You'll probably see this on your map. Cush, which is uh, Ethiopia. Put, which is Libya, uh, will be with them, all with shields and helmets, also Gomer. Uh, all these things are on the map, uh, with all its troops. And Beth Togomath, from the far north, with all its troops, the many nations with you. So, um, what you've got is, um, and, and people swap these things around. People don't necessarily put these, all these things in, in, in the same order on the map. If you go to the Table of Nations, Genesis chapter 10, Okay, okay. Genesis chapter 10. Then, in looking at your map, you will find that, I'm going to read from, from the first verse of chapter 10. This is the account of Shem, Ham, and Jephath, Noah's sons, who themselves had sons after the flood. So, the flood has occurred, and Noah have sons. And the sons of Jephath, and this is verse 2, Gomer, Magog, Madel, Chabel, Turbul, Meshech, and Taras. If you have a look on the map, you will see how those sons of Japhath uh, dissipated across um, most of the north. They're coming from the north. Okay, So those names on the map equate with the names in verse 2. Rosh and Tyras I have put at the top um, because Ross, sometimes uh, people say Rosh um, instead of Tyros. It's just the same people. But the word uh, Russia comes from the word Rosh. It's, it's made out of the word Rosh. Okay? 
And in Russia today, there's a river called the Tyras. All right. So this, this is a link coming through because what it says in the Bible, that these people will come out of the north. So you've got Gog, who is going to be in charge of all these people. And you can see it's got Magog on the map up near uh, Russia. It's got down the bottom, we come from Ethiopia, people from Put. And this is a, a consortium of people that will come up against Israel. Now, if you go to Revelation chapter 20 and verse 7, It's the last book in the Bible. Okay. Uh, verse 7. When a thousand years are over, that's the uh, millennium, uh, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth. Here we go again, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand of the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet have been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Okay, I'm Armageddon, if you like. So, right the way back in Genesis... We've got all of these guys that are on this map. And right the way through the Bible to Revelation, here they are again. So Gog and Magog is back representing these, all of these people. Is back in Genesis. Gog and Magog is in Revelation. It's come right the way through the Bible. All of these things that, that the devil wants to bring down against God and his people and whoever he is and his word, you and me has come right the way through the Bible to the end of time when God finally deals with the devil. Um, so what, what I want to say really is to take you through um, a list of just how the devil has worked right through time from Genesis through to Revelation against the church, against his people, against Israel, and against the, the, the patriarchs. So what we've got is if, uh, I've got a few notes here, right? What if God's plan to redeem the world required the existence of a nation and a continuance of that nation? If you destroy that nation, will you destroy God's plans? So. Uh, a, cosmic, a cosmic conflict has been waged as a pursuit by Satan to destroy the seed. This is the seed. This is Jesus. Remember the seed? Um, the serpent's head is going to be crushed. Uh, that would crush the serpent. So Cain kills Abel, the righteous one who brings the appropriate sacrifice. The promise then continues through Seth. And then let's make the world wicked so that God would destroy everything except it didn't happen because this is the flood, okay? So except for one family who was going to preserve the promise of the seed to come. So you know the world got so bad before the flood that God says, I, I finished with it. I'm going to bring a flood. I'm going to destroy everything. So behind all of that is the devil that makes 
the people are so bad, if you like, that, that, that God is going to bring that out. But he doesn't succeed because there is one family, Noel, that, that comes through to, to continue this line of the seed. Esau wanted to kill Jacob because Jacob was a son of promise. But as we know, he didn't. So the son of promise is still coming through. Pharaoh in Egypt wants to kill all the Jewish boys, the Moses situation. So he wants to stop the line. He's going to kill all of the, all of the, all of the babies, all of the male babies. Moses comes through the lap line. <clears throat> in 2 Kings chapter 11, uh, a woman by the name of Athaliah decides to kill the entire royal line of Judah. She destroys them all except Joash. Uh, Joash is hidden away by his midwife, his, his, uh, you know, his, 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 his mentors. And so he's hidden away, so the line is not destroyed, even though this lady, prompted by the devil, wants to destroy all of the royal line of Judah. Herod comes along, and he wants to kill Jesus, because Jesus is going to be king. This is the, the, the line, the seed coming through. But, because the word of God comes to Joseph and Mary, they go to Egypt. So he kills all the babies around Bethlehem, but he don't get the seed that's, that's, that's going to come through. The line is still continuing. When Jesus goes into the synagogue in Nazareth, and he reads the, the scroll from Isaiah proclaiming who he is, the people take him out and they want to throw him off the cliff. But he walks through. Again, the devil don't succeed in what he wants to do. When Jesus died on the cross, there's a party in hell. The devil thinks he's won. But the devil hadn't read the small print because Jesus says, no one takes my life. I lay it down and, and, and I will take it up. Again, all the way through the Bible, is the devil waging war against against the seed, against what is coming, and he doesn't succeed because um, he now continues his assault on us, the church, and on his chosen people, and on his land of Jerusalem. Because if God plans of redemption required the existence of a nation and a continuance of that nation, and if you destroy that nation, you will thwart God's plans. You prevent God from fulfilling his promises. And in, in this day and age, um, and I, I don't know if you, I want you to think about this because I don't know if you agree with me with this, but this is my line. Yesterday in London, there were 300,000 people marching for Palestine. And over the last week or so, there have been people marching in Berlin, Paris, New York, on the campuses in America, all marching for uh, Palestine. And the phrase is, whether they understand it or not, is from the river to the sea. And the river to the sea really means obliterating Israel from the Jordan to the Mediterranean. That's, that's, that's the call behind it. Now, in the last two years, Russia have been waging war against the Ukraine. And some 200,000 Russian soldiers have been killed. Who knows 
how many people have been killed in Ukraine. The people of Ukraine have been taken out and have gone to live all over Europe because their country have been decimated. Now, I haven't seen 300,000 people marching through London saying, Russia, get out of Ukraine. I haven't heard of anything all around the world saying this. But suddenly, Israel is in this war with Hamas, and you get all these people around the world marching. Now, I'll leave you to think uh, and to control your, come to your own conclusion what's happening here. Uh, the, the devil wants to uh, destroy Israel, but as we know, coming right the way through to Revelation, it's not going to happen. And even with uh, Armageddon, God is going to come down to um, decimate them, uh, decimate the people and all of the people on this map that are going to come up against Israel at the end times. Now, you might see things different in that, and that's absolutely fine. Um, but I'm trying to give you a picture of right the way through the Bible of what is happening, if you want to call it Gog and Magog, and what is happening and how the devil wants to attack all the way through Israel, he wants to attack us now, and he will not stop to the end of time until Jesus uh, comes back and to Armageddon. And um, that is the way that I see this, this question of, of Gog and Magog. And if you just want to bring it down simply, Gog is the prince of Magog. Gog is the leader of Magog. Gog is the leader of these, this alliance. And this alliance is entirely Arab. Um, I'm going to leave that with you now because you may well have um, a different opinion. I um, <clears throat> I love that you did the Genesis to Revelation with the way that the enemy has been at work. Just to say, I we didn't know that we were going to be talking about Satan and the way that he's been working throughout the Bible. So I was like, oh, this is really cool because we've both kind of talking on the same thing um, in terms of just the work of the enemy from Genesis all the way through. Um, so that was really cool. I, I, um, I'm going to throw something in there, not politically, um, but theologically. Um, Den and I will differ a little bit on where we land. And so just, to, just so you know that we have a loving relationship but have different points of view, just to put that out there and say that that's okay in this church. Um, I think... Politically, I think what's going on, whether it's in Russia and Ukraine or Israel and Gaza, I think is terrible. And, you know, hey, um, pray for peace and all of that. And, but um, just theologically, coming back to what Dan was saying, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty much with Dan all the way through until the point when we get to just after Jesus. So I think Dan hit the nail on the head right back in Genesis when the enemy comes against the seed of the woman. Um, and that, that there, that word seed is, is singular, it's not plural, it's the seed. And, it's, and, and from my understanding theologically, that is looking to the one who would come, who is Jesus. And so the enemy is, is constantly trying to shut down, because obviously each of those lines through Israel, Jesus would come. And, and so he is, he is the hope. He's the salvation. Uh, he, it's his kingdom. He's what it's all about. And the enemy's trying to stop that ever happening right back from there. And I'm with them up to that point. And then from, from there, for me, I would, I would agree with everything Den said other than I don't personally in Scripture see um, that 
God is still needing to save a nation. Um, because for me now, as I read in scripture, that, that people, that true Israel, is everyone who puts their faith in Jesus. So like it tells us that Abraham and his line, they are Israel not because of bloodline, but because of their faith in, uh, in God. And so, um, yeah, so I, 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 if you want to use the term Israel, I'm, I'm fine with that. But I, in my mind, when I read the scriptures in the New Testament and what God is doing, it doesn't, for me, doesn't mean that land and that people in that place. It means the people of God through the Son of God, through Jesus. Does, does that make sense? So Den and I would agree all the way up to that point. And he obviously does believe that all those who have faith in Jesus are part of that. But for Den, there's still that physical thing of Jerusalem and, and the nation of Israel. Whereas for me, when I read scripture, I don't see that um, as an actual thing. I think it is the people of God who have faith in Jesus, regardless of their their nationality and where they live on the globe. Um, God is going to be king of all of it, not just this one place and that sort of thing. So, yeah, we would differ on that. But... We'll leave that with you guys to read and, and discern for yourselves. Uh, but we are agreed on the fact that the enemy is trying to stop what God was doing in and through the work of Jesus. And he, we know when we read Revelation, however you cut it, we know that he fails and Jesus is victorious. So, um, yeah. I think I, I, I'm 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 with you, and and I I think yeah, absolutely. I, I think I just throw in just to defend the other side of the argument. Uh, I think that there are verses that throw it open to question, and it depends how you interpret those verses. And tonight we haven't got time to dig into all of those verses, but I, um, well, I don't agree with Dan, and he doesn't agree with me. I think we can both look at the verses that the other one are looking at, and we can understand how each other are landing in those different places. So, well, I do think the Bible is quite simple and clear. I also, on the other hand, would say the Bible is really confusing, a completely messy book, and sometimes it's really difficult to understand. And I think it is both at the same time. <laughs> it's challenging. Maybe sometime we can, maybe sometime what we'll do is, um, maybe one of the Q&As, what we'll do is we'll, we'll take a, a topic, and rather than us answering it, maybe what we'll do is we'll just put out on the tables all of the Bible verses that seem to paint different pictures and we'll just talk them through and, and see because um, I think it's really interesting. Um, yeah, it's, it's easy to say the only way is through Jesus. And, and, I, and so for me, then I'm like, yep, if you've rejected Jesus, you've rejected Yahweh because he is God, right? So how can, you do, and I, I'm with you on that. But then it's also easy to say, well, Israel is God's chosen people and that's it. But actually, again, when we look in the scriptures, we see, um, we see again that this rejection of God by those people and rejection of them by Him, and we see an embracing of other nations and all kinds of stuff. I think it's easy to make those statements, but actually to go back to the scriptures and wrestle through, well, what is really going on here? And for me, if if we suddenly, and this is difficult because I love to debate this stuff, and I'm really up for that. I, I love it. But I will say, and I have to check myself on this, because the moment that one of these things becomes, becomes the thing we build it on, 
or the moment that this becomes an immovable rock other than Jesus, we're in trouble. So if Israel, the nation, becomes the immovable rock that our faith is built around, we're in trouble. If, and I think that's true of lots of different things. Jesus is, is the rock that we build this around. And um, so I just, my challenge for, for whether you agree with me or whether you agree with Den is, is to read that stuff and constantly come back to the person of Jesus because it's all about him, isn't it? And that he said that himself in, in Luke, at the end of Luke's gospel. So, yeah, we're going to park that one there. Um, and we'll leave you to read and think on that. And, yeah, maybe we'll try and organize a, a, a specific Q&A at some point in the, in the new year where we do it a bit differently and we'll just put all the verses out and we'll have this, this conversation. As long as everybody promises to be polite and full of peace towards one another. Then, yeah. What you have to say, Di, is, what you have to say is, in my opinion, dense theology is up the creek. You can say that. That's allowed. <laughs> yeah, all right. All right. Well, let's not go. That's another one. Right. Okay. Um, we'll have to. Yeah. Okay. Um, so we've got, we've got two questions left. We'll see how we go with them. And we're doing both of these as group questions. Okay. So we'll start with the first one. Um, so the first one is Jude 20. So Jude 20, um, and the question is, what does it mean to pray in the Spirit? What does it mean to pray in the Spirit? Um, have you got Jude 20 there, Den? Do you want to just read it? Um, right, here we go. But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up, in your most holy faith, and praying in the Holy Spirit. I just go on. Keep, go, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. So you, dear friends, by praying in the Holy Spirit. So what does it mean to pray in the Spirit? Um, so I'm going to give you, if, if do you go, let's form two, two, two tables and we'll, have a little chat. We'll just take maybe kind of four or five minutes, have a little chat and come up with what you think and we'll share our thoughts. Is that okay? Great. Go for it. All right, then. You've had your five minutes. What does it mean to pray in the spirit? Um, do you guys want to go first? Want to share? Um, they're still talking. Um, well, we said several things. We said like um, praying in the spirit could be speaking in tongues, or praying in the spirit is um, just as God lays things on your heart. He shows you what He wants you to pray for, um, and that's being praying in in the spirit. Um, and I said like some somebody asked me to pray this morning, and I said, "What do you want prayer for?" And they said, "Ask us, Holy Spirit." Um, and so that's praying in the spirit. There's all. There's not just one way. There's all different ways of praying in the spirit. Um, and as Cheryl said, we all agreed. Is that um, God says pray in the spirit. So you ask the Holy Spirit what He wants you to pray for. 
but he already knows. So <laughs> why does he ask you to pray when he already knows? <laughs> you know, um, it's, it sometimes doesn't quite make sense in some ways. Um, but that was sort of the thing mostly that we said. Okay, you guys? Um, you kind of said that um, it might be like praying God's will or praying um, what you kind of think the Spirit is telling you to pray, I guess, a bit like what you said. Um, but then we also had like a side question, I guess, <laughs> tangent um of if someone doesn't know god and they just throw up a prayer um because they're not filled with the spirit is that yeah what's that about <laughs> there's val's question <laughs> if someone's um prays to god but they're not a christian don't know jesus and they're not filled with the spirit so it's not in them that can't be praying in the spirit because they or can it oh great i love a throwback question um so um i'm going to come to that question in a second is that right so so first up just a few things i think you guys covered most of the stuff i've got down here but um you find three places in the new testament where it talks about praying in the spirit so that's 1 corinthians 14 15 in the midst of the gifts of the spirit stuff um, Ephesians 6, 18, and Jude 20. Um, and the phrase in Greek, to pray in, um, it, it can mean a number of things. So it can mean by means of, so praying by means of the Spirit. Uh, it can mean with the help of, so prompted and guided by the Spirit. It can mean in the sphere of, so almost like um, in the presence of or in the atmosphere of. So in the, I don't know, we talk about the spirit of the 80s. Right, and you've got you things come to mind, don't they? You know, like the spirit of the 90s, the spirit of the 60s, or whatever. In you know, this to pray in the spirit, it, it, almost to pray in the atmosphere of heaven, you know, in, in the sphere of that. Um, to pray, so by it to pray, and also can mean in connection to, so in relationship with. So, so kind of, yeah, what do you want prayer for? Ask the spirit, yeah, great. But why does God say to us? to pray when he already knows what we're going to pray because he's a relational God, you know, because he wants to talk with his kids. Like, he wants to hear the things of your heart. And so, yeah, I think it can mean mean all of that. Um, I think it doesn't necessarily refer to the words that we say, but how we pray them. Does that make sense? Um, another one is Romans eight twenty six, which tells us that when we don't know what to pray, the Spirit himself yeah, it intercedes or utters groans within us. So um, again, this to pray by the Spirit might. Do you ever have that moment where you're like, I don't know what to pray about this, but here goes, you know, and you just just go for it and just you know, and sometimes just trust that the Holy Spirit's gonna 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 guide you on that. Um, uh, um, I think as well, like what I love about that is. Is the Holy Spirit is in you, you know? So, again, it is it's this relational thing where he is in you and guiding you and leading you and giving you the words to say when you don't know what to say. Um, and the other thing, some people, obviously, with 1 Corinthians 14, 14, think that, that praying in the Spirit means praying in tongues. 
<clears throat> I think that it can look like praying in tongues, but I don't think praying in the Spirit is limited to praying in tongues. Um, um, I loved what you said, actually, Em. I hadn't thought about this until you guys said it. But does it mean praying the Word of God? And that, that's so cool, because I think, actually, in Ephesians, it tells us, was it Val said that, did she? Oh, the will. Oh, okay. I thought you said, oh, praying the will of God. Yeah, yeah, great. I thought you said praying the, the word of God. And I was like, boom, that is genius from that group. Like, <clears throat> oh, well. Um, yeah, you said that. Great. Yeah, it must have been the spirit. Yeah. But I actually thought, oh, that's so good because Ephesians tells us that, that the word of God is the sword of the spirit. So sometimes when we want to we we go at something in prayer, we need the word of God. We just pray the scripture over it, you know? Um, I was like, that's, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I've got a home mobile. I'm trying to 
I think I've shared with you guys before the story about my friend Adam and when the Holy Spirit just prompted me to pray for him. And um, and the next thing I know, I I was on my knees. I was just crying, praying in tongues. I had no idea what I was praying. I had this kind of, and then it just lifted and stopped. I was like, oh, that's strange. And then suddenly Adam called me and I ended up going to see him. And he wasn't a Christian, but he'd been diagnosed with something the doctor said he'd have for the rest of his life. He was in a lot of pain. And I'd prayed with him and he was healed. Um so that, like, yeah, I just think when the spirit prompts you, you just go for it, don't you? You don't know what's going on. Yeah, trust me, I've tried to pray that sort of prayer again, and it's not been working. So I'm like, I'm like, come on, Holy Spirit. Yeah. Um, anyway, um, what was your question? Your follow-up question? Um, if someone who isn't, a, if someone isn't a Christian, prays, is that praying in the spirit? Because they're not filled with the Spirit. Yeah, um, I'm going to be, <clears throat> I haven't had long to think about it, so I'm just going to extrovert a couple of thoughts out at you. Is that okay? And I'm going to leave you with more questions than you've got answers. Great. Um, so one part of me says, one part of me says, no, that's not praying in the Spirit. Um, because, like you say, they're not filled with the Spirit. But the other part of me says, well, God is Spirit. That's what the Bible says. So how can you, pray to him and not pray in the spirit like and in fact actually the bible also tells us that nobody can say jesus is lord except by the holy spirit now maybe they're not saying jesus is lord but i reckon that if you've got to the point where you are calling out to him you're recognizing something of the lordship of jesus to do something in the situation you're praying about also the bible tells us that it's only by the holy spirit that that jesus is revealed to us so if they're calling on Jesus, then maybe the Spirit is at work there. I often think about Genesis 1, how the Spirit is hovering over the surface of the deep darkness. Was the Spirit in it? No, but it was hovering over it. And actually, I think that's true today. I think God's Spirit is hovering over what in many lives is deep darkness. And he's, he's stirring them up. Come, come and meet Jesus, you know. Um, Joel 2 says, doesn't it? And it gets quoted in Acts, that famous passage. But in those days, I will pour out my Spirit on Christian flesh. That's not what it says, does it? It says, in those days, I'll pour out my spirit on all, all flesh. All flesh. And I'm like, oh, what, is, what does that mean? That the Holy Spirit is resting on all flesh. Now, it doesn't mean the Holy Spirit is dwelling in all flesh, but, but he's resting on all flesh. And therefore, your young men will dream dreams, and your old men will have visions, and your daughters will prophesy. And you're, I'm like, wow, that's not just necessarily the Christians, but all flesh, the Holy Spirit can be at work in. So, so I don't know, is my answer. Yes. Yes. Who knows? <laughs> this, yeah. Is that okay? Um, it's half past, so I'm going to stop there. Um, and um, yeah, Den, why don't you pray for us? Lord, thank you. And we've had a good night in you. And I believe that you've directed us in all what we've said, in all what you've done, and you have spoken through us about your word in discussion and in what we've done. And we thank you for that because we believe that what is done tonight is done in the spirit, things of what we've just been talking about. And we praise your holy name and we bless your holy name because you are not only Lord, you are sovereign. And you are king of kings. And so, Lord, send us home in the knowledge 
and the love of the Lord Jesus Christ, the King and the Sovereign. Amen.